And welcome back to The Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer. We're talking with Sean Scully about the state of local news uh, and uh, the big stories that, uh, we're, that we have seen up here in Napa in 2019 and maybe take a look forward at what you think is, is going to be trending in 2020. Uh, elections and fires and live with both. They're you think of, we'll have both? Yeah, I think I predict confidently we will have both. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got uh, we've got uh, municipal elections. Those haven't shaped up yet because um, that's in the fall. But we've already got a couple, couple contested supervisor races. Yes. Very um, interesting, I think. Yeah. And I don't there are a couple of them I don't quite understand. Yeah. I mean, I, I under Alfredo Pedroza is being challenged by an environmental scientist named Amber Manfrey. And I, that I get. The other one is uh, Billy Ramos being challenged by an American Canyon uh, City Councilwoman Miriam Abdamis. Yeah. Um, and she, I don't really understand the basis of her candidacy yet. We haven't talked to her about it, and she hasn't said a whole lot. So I'd be very curious to find out what what impelled her to run. Yeah, I want to have them both on the show. Um, you know, uh, I, I think I think she is a is a protege of Belia's. I think they were allies, well, yeah, close they, allies for a long time. Yeah, I don't know how close, but certainly they were on, you know, on, the on friendly together. terms. There was yeah. nothing, nothing, at least on the surface, that I was aware of right, that right. would cause a rupture. So I'm not, that one I really can't analyze yet. Right. Uh, we're going to have them in in probably about a week to yeah. talk about it. Yeah, no, I'd like to have, I mean, one of the things we're going to do on this show is try and get all those supervisorial candidates uh, in and the, uh, the city council candidates in because... Um, you know, I don't know how often people get a chance to just have a conversation with them for 20, 30 minutes uh, about what they're really all about and what they're, um, you know, why they think they deserve to be in elected office. Yeah, well, that's one actually kind of an interesting thing we do. Um, we bring them into the editorial board. Right. Uh, and give them 30 minutes and say, why are you running? Who are you? And uh, it can be very, very enlightening. It's the old, uh, it's the old Roger Mudd. You remember the famous Roger Mudd interview with Ted Kennedy when you know he oh, asked yeah. him, "Why are you running for president?" And he couldn't answer. Right. I mean, and when I've talked to um, some of the folks who are running, I mean, I think I know all of them. Um, the first question I ask is, "Why are you running?" Yeah. And the answer, you know, it better be pretty good. You know, it's like I'm running because I want to change this or because this needs to be done. Especially if you're running against an incumbent. Especially if you're running uh, against an incumbent. I mean, that's a really high bar. And in fact, typically when we do endorsements, we sort of we come out right up front. The, the presumption is that the incumbent deserves another term unless there's some obvious reason why they don't. And I mean, if they've screwed up, if there's a scandal, if they've right. you know been lackadaisical. And there have been a few times where we actually where the where the challenger has come out and said really dynamic things and the and the incumbent comes in and is sort of lazy and you know if the incumbent comes comes in and says i'm doing this because you know i've done a great job for four years that's not all that good either when i worked in politics you know there was a saying that you know you can sum up a campaign in two words if you're an incumbent it's trust me if you're a challenger it's better future right right and so you better you're right um Incumbents always have the advantage. I think um, people who are assuming that because they really dislike this president that he's going to lose are, uh, yeah. you know, I think that's a, that idea is going to be severely tested. Um, you know, people don't just vote you out of office because they don't like you. It's right. happened every once in a while. Right. And, and, and I mean, sometimes you get a throw the bums out yes. mood. I think that can happen more at the local level than on the national level. Right. Uh, but you do get caught in that kind of stuff. But um yeah, I mean, once you're in, 
you have a, a big advantage. I mean, I, I, I get complaints all the time from people trying to run against Mike Thompson, right. who hasn't had a really major race in a, in a long time. Um, you know, why are you? Why is he always in the paper? Well, I'm sorry. He's, he's your the, congressman. He's your congressman. <laughs> right. Um, he's the only one we got. Right. right. And so, you know, I didn't set the rules, and I'm sorry if it's really, really hard right. to run against uh, an incumbent congressman who has not screwed up. Right. I mean, you know, you get a guy like Duncan Hunter down in Southern California who, you know, was was stealing from the kitty in his campaign fund. Badly. I mean, not, not yeah. even doing it well. No, doing it terribly. Well, even he survived. I mean, he eventually had to resign, but... Uh, you know, so you can have some really bad people and they get entrenched as, as incumbents. Um, you know, I, I try to be fair to every candidate. Uh, I can't help the fact that your opponent is on the city council, is, in, is a supervisor, is a congressman, is the president. I, think, I can't help that. I think I saw a statistic um, where they rate members of Congress by uh, their kind of vote plurality, like who is the most popular at home. And I think Thompson was pretty near the top of the list because he will routinely turn in, you know, 70 percent. Yeah, that something like that. I haven't seen that list, but it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what's funny, I, I used to cover Congress and and even back then, 20 years ago, the saying basically was everybody hates Congress, but loves their congressman. That's exactly right. Because uh, it's the person, you know, and again, coming sort of coming back like you, you, you have to local journalism, right. uh, you know, you might hate the media. But you know, don't take my register, <laughs> right? You you live next door to the city editor of the of the paper, or you know whatever. So uh, and that's very much true in politics, and that's kind of why I really enjoy covering stuff at this level. Covering Congress was really interesting; it was a lot of fun, but I didn't find it all that rewarding, or as rewarding as this, because you sort of write this story that goes out into the ether, and you don't get a lot of feedback. Right. Uh, we write a story here. And we get feedback. And, and I'll be honest, I really don't care if somebody calls me and yells at me because that's good. It yeah. means they care enough about the paper to wish we'd done better. Well, that's and, right. And so I don't enjoy it when someone calls and fusses at me or points out an error or anything. However, if they don't call, then you got a problem. Right. If they don't call, then we really do have a problem. And so that's why I tell people, they'll sometimes say, well, I'm you know, sorry I had to break bad on you. I'm like, look, I'll take criticism offered in good faith because... Uh, you cared enough to pick up the phone. And I think of, I tend to think of local newspapers. It's almost like family, you know, you'll say, you'll say things to family members. You would never say to a stranger, right. You know, have worse fights with your spouses, your, your siblings. Right. And it's because you're familiar and you care about each other and you can't. Right. And so therefore when people rag on their local newspaper, which is, I think also enshrined in the constitution, <laughs> it's the right to hate your local newspaper, but at least you care enough to Depends hate Depends how you me. interpret the first amendment. Well, right. right. If right. you didn't, you know, if you didn't care enough to hate me, I'd be in big trouble. Yeah. What do you think the most consequential stories were of this past year of 2019? Uh, locally or locally? locally? Oh, I think it's hard to overstate the, um, the fire. I mean, that's just changed everything about how we live. It's changed everything about how we even look at our landscape. I mean, think about, you know, driving along. I commute every day from Calistoga to Napa, so I see these beautiful hillsides. And they really are gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, until, until about 2015, I didn't realize they were out to kill me, you know, honestly. <laughs> and, uh, what, what's interesting is, you know, we, we back about five or six years ago, my wife and I went up to Oregon. We stayed in Sun River, just south of Bend. Yeah, I love, I love and there's Sun a little River. community there at Sun River that's basically built into a national forest and it's gorgeous. I mean, that you were really living in the national forest. We had so much fun. Well, two years ago, we went back up there, stayed in the same area and we had a very different reaction, which is, 
oh my God, what happens when this place burns? How do we get out of here? And we really didn't enjoy it as much. Nothing had changed except our understanding of this is a really bad place to be putting all these people. Um, so you've got that. It's going to change. It's changed the landscape. It's changed our view of the landscape. It's changed our view of where and how we build. But then also you pile on top of that um, the public safety power shutdown. Suddenly we take for granted, you know, we used to take for granted that unlike parts of the developing world, right. we had water and power all the all time. The time. Right. And now we're faced with this choice of dying in a, in a massive blaze or living without electricity, you know, being plunged into the 19th century. That's stupid. Well, a couple of it's years ago, stupid. we had to we had to evacuate our house. Fire was maybe a mile away. That's as close as it got. It's still pretty close. But we had no power, and the, the whole place was so smoky, you couldn't turn right. on a fan or air conditioner or anything else to get it out. And, you know, these were the days when Napa was reporting, like, the worst air in the world, right? right? If you remember, worse than India, um, China, and so on. Yeah, so... I mean, that's that, think about think about something that has changed our lives um, completely. That's it. More more than anything else. More than measure mm-hmm. C. More than you know political wrangling. It's it's how we live. My uh, colleague uh, Antonio DeWalk, who helps me with this show, um, was telling me about an article yesterday um, that was um, it was talking about you know how do you recover tourism in an area that's been hit by fire and yeah. how do you deal with perceptions and so on and i know that's a very real thing i know there are a lot of people who think napa's just burned down right or right. big parts of uh, of the community have just burned down and th- some pr guy says well they need to do tourism based on disaster recovery they need to like show people <laughs> how you know how effective and, wow and, and I thought that's about the worst idea I've ever heard. Yeah, you know that uh, I'll have to wrap my head around that one. Yeah, uh, we well, know it's interesting in in, uh, uh, in talking to business owners in Calistoga, who, who we've gotten hit with the power shutoffs much more than 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 Napa. Yeah, I know. Uh, and and so what's happened is people are simply not coming, and it's not because they think that the town's been destroyed. They know it hasn't been destroyed. But why am I going to book a wedding? In right. Calistoga, if the lights are going in go October, up. if there's a reasonable chance that it's there's going to be no power, and so that's really put a hurt on business up there. Uh, I think St. Helena's feeling some of it, even though that's more indirect. Uh, I'm sure Healdsburg and Geyserville and all these other towns are are, are experiencing the same kinds of things. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. One of the things I really do want to have uh, an ongoing discussion about on this program is. Uh, is fire recovery and PG&E. So um, any of you who have ideas, I would encourage you to um, shoot me a note at deepdiveshow at windownmedia.com. That's W-I-N-E, deepdiveshow at windownmedia.com. Continuing our our conversation with Sean Scully from the uh, Napa Valley Register. Um, Has the Register had to look at different kinds of partnerships, different kinds of business models. I see a lot of newspapers, for example, are doing podcasts and are doing, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, 
special inserts and that sort of thing? What, yeah. What? Uh, well, one of the things that to, to realize is uh, there are a lot of new business models that are coming out. I mean, there's sort of, you know, some newspapers like most prominently the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Daily News are owned by a nonprofit. Yes. Um, you have the Press Democrat and some of the papers uh, over the, in, An organization that's supposed to be a nonprofit, well, not that it just happens yeah, to no, be. No, no, right, right. right it has right. very little profit, but right. right uh, no, a true nonprofit. Um, and then you have the Press Democrat that's owned by uh, a group of local notables and business yes. uh, executives. Different models like that. We're owned by a publicly traded company, Lee Enterprises. Um, so we don't have a lot of flexibility to, you know, sort of strike out on our own uh, and do different business models. Uh, fortunately, Lee, unlike some of the publicly traded companies, Lee really is at heart a journalism company. A lot of these papers, like we were during the break, we were talking about the uh, the Bay Area News Group. Yeah, private owned, equity takes right, them right, over. They're owned by a hedge fund, and they right. don't give a hoot about anything other than the bottom line. That's right. And while Lee Enterprises certainly cares about the bottom line, and if they didn't, they'd be out of out of a job real quick. Um, at heart, they are a journalism company. And they realize that if you squeeze the journalism side, eventually you don't have a product. It would be sort of like McDonald's right. saving money by doing away with beef. Yeah. It's just not going to work. So Lee Enterprises, tell me a little bit about that company. Uh, Where are they I, based? How many yeah, papers? I, I actually I like to say it's the biggest journalism group you've never heard of. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the about the fourth largest journalism group in the country. It's primarily the Midwest. Uh, and the biggest paper is the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which is a really big storied paper. It's, yes. a, it's, a, it's a great paper. Um, they're headquartered in Iowa, but they have sort of different flagship papers. We've got the uh, the Madison newspaper, Madison, Wisconsin newspaper. We, we've got papers in, um, in, um, in Montana, uh, some papers in Arizona. We've got three, but it, by a sort of a weird historical accident, there are three papers in California, and it's because they wanted the Pulitzer chain. They wanted the, the Post-Dispatch and a couple other properties in the Midwest. And it just happened that Pulitzer owned three papers in California, us, Santa Maria, and, and Hanford down in the Central Valley. Right. So we're sort of this odd little outpost Western outpost of Lee Enterprises, um, and uh, it's got 40, God, 46 papers. Uh, and what's what's interesting about them, and, I, and what has made me feel a lot better about the future, is um, they've done a very good job, kind of centralizing functions that can be centralized. Because what happened during the sort of as the the bottom fell out of the economic model of newspapers, we weren't really thinking about strategy we were just thinking about survival so like somebody somebody leaves we don't fill that position or you know get rid of the copy editors that kind of thing um, now they're beginning to take a more strategic position we, we lost a huge I mean every newspaper not just the register every newspaper lost a huge huge amount of capability during that period we lost our national editors we lost our graphic artists we lost our designers all of those things and so now they've kind of stabilized the business model a little bit and are thinking more okay so where can we build back? capabilities and what makes sense to centralize. So for example, a lot of the design and layout work is done centrally. So yeah, we've lost our cop our local design people, which hurts because those are our friends. Um, and yet we haven't lost that capability. And in fact, they're building back some capabilities. We've got a centralized graphics desk uh, that we can use. Service, kind of uh, a service bureau for all of you. Yeah, your, exactly. You know. We've got a centralized national bureau. Uh, like, you know, you'll see a fair bit of national coverage on our, our website. That's coming centrally. Uh, you know, we certainly have input and can tell them if there's something that they should be paying attention to or something that nobody out here cares about. Like once in a while, you'll see something leak through yes. uh, on our Facebook page about, you know, how to winterize your car. 
great for Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, I was going to say. But unless you're going to Tahoe, really nobody here cares. So we, we can, you know, it has a few oddball wrinkles, but on balance, it really helps us. I'm going to read you a, um, an interesting study that I found from, this, this is from a couple of weeks ago from uh, Axios uh, and SurveyMonkey. And it says that uh, a full 67% of the people in a, in a new poll report themselves being angry at the news. Oh, yeah. Why oh, do you yeah. think that is? Well, think about it. I mean, what's in the news now, right? I mean, we're... Terrible stuff. Terrible stuff uh, and, and, and polarizing stuff. And people also, news much more, rather than sitting... I mean, everybody remembers their dad sitting in, the news, in their chair reading the newspaper and, you know, going, oh, I can't believe that. Yeah. This is a different kind of thing. News isn't that anymore. News now is social media. And so what you've got is... We might post a story, but then there's all this commentary on it or people sharing it in, 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 with their own spin on it. Um, there are news outlets that specialize in amping people up. I mean, that's just what they did because that pays. Honestly, we could do the same thing if we wanted to. I don't want to be that kind of. Yeah, operation. I heard somebody yesterday talking about, you know, uh, you know, you only want conflict because that's that's what sells newspapers. And uh, I'm like, you know, uh, show me. Prove yeah, that. Right, well, Prove to me that that's really what sells newspapers. Right. It's yes and no. Uh, I, I mean, mean sports, you know, what, when you're talking about conflict, uh, you know, why do you cover sports? Well, every sports match is a conflict. It's a conflict. Somebody and in wins, fact, somebody politics loses. is to a large, I mean, it's, right. there was never was a hand, a time when everybody joined hand in hand and, right. you know, sang hymns and then things happened. Uh, it's always been conflict. Uh, I think it's just a lot more out in the open. I think it's amped up. So I don't think we've changed as people. I think it's just the technologies we've created can can amp up our worst our worst instincts. Of course, you know, people say that, you know, oh, you just want conflict. And I'm like, well, do you read novels about nothing? Yeah. Uh, do you, you know, Walter Cronkite famously said when an airplane takes off safely and lands safely, it's not news. Right. And I've used that on people and they're just like, oh, okay, I, I guess you're right. Now, in my... Uh in my crisis class, <clears throat> excuse me, I teach my students, um, you know, and I show a headline that says 1,500 planes land safely at airport. Right. Right. Why will you never see that? Why will you never see that headline? It's not news. Right. It's it, what's supposed <laughs> to happen. Right. Exactly. So when things are working perfectly, uh, and that's why people say, well, why don't you report the good news? Well, we do sometimes. Uh, you know, if, if, if the unemployment rate is great, and you know, we do report that, but those aren't the big winners. Uh, it's, you know, the... Honestly, the big the big uh, stories are, you know, police detain Vallejo man after 95 mile an hour pursuit through American Canyon. Right. That kind of stuff. Um, that's right. That's what people want. It's proximate. Read. It's novel. It's, you know, right. it's got it's all the elements that unusual. make it news. Right. Exactly. And if you define news as something you don't already know. Right. right? And, and that's why actually, you know, it's a. Broadcast television basically has has fallen for the if it bleeds it leads because those are that would be easy for us to do is just do nothing but crime briefs all day. Um, the problem is that doesn't really tell you anything about your community, you know. And, and so we report the big news, but there's no point in reporting every twiddly arrest because it'll make it sound like there's nothing but crime. Right. We could do great on traffic if we did that, um, but we 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 don't because if it bleeds it leads just is not a, a good useful community building strategy. So here's another interesting piece, <clears throat> excuse me, that I was re researching for uh, this show uh, from uh, Neiman Lab, which, you know, is a big um, uh, uh, think tank, I guess, for journalism. And the headline on this piece is people who are given correct information 
still misremember it to fit their own beliefs. Yeah, and that happens. That happens. I don't think that's anything new uh, well, at it all. It says it's here been... that it, it, it does say that uh, it, it, the whole piece is talking about what they call the myth of the attentive public. Right. That we've never really been, that we've always shaped information to conform to our our beliefs or what, yeah. what's convenient for us. Absolutely. And people, people get, but it, it, again, we haven't changed as a, as a species all that much, I don't think, but just the, the ability now to shelter from things you don't like. Right. I mean, like, you know, when, when our national desk pushes out fact checks, AP fact checks of the president, uh, or something of that sort, people go bananas. Right. They're like, you know, oh, biased. Why are you, you know, why are you, why are you publishing all this negative information? Like it's, it's just information. And they don't like hearing critical things about people they like. And it's much easier now to retreat into that kind of shell. Right. Well, uh, Sean Scully, I want to thank you very much. And uh, thanks for being my, my first guest on uh, my first show. Yeah, honored to be here. It was a, it was a, real, uh, a real treat having you. Um, I, I'm hoping that um, we can make this a conversation. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Dive Show. You can go to our Facebook page, which is Deep Dive Show, and our email, deepdiveshow at windownmedia.com. Next week, we're going to take a look at uh, one of the largest lakes in California, Lake Berryessa, here in our backyard, and whether or not Napa is really deriving the uh, economic benefits that it could. Uh, our guest is going to be talking about uh, what he considers to be 50 years of mismanagement of Lake Berryessa. Uh, at the hands of the federal government. If you like our show, please encourage your friends to uh, tune in. We're on every Thursday at 9, and you can hear complete episodes of our program uh, at kvon.com. Thank you very much for joining us for the Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer.